I, early in my management career, I found it really uncomfortable to be a boss. And it is, it's a really uncomfortable thing for a lot of people, this shift from going from, I'm a peer, we work together and there's no power dynamic to, I'm now in charge of you. The, there's an inclination to give that power away as quickly as possible. And so the first time I managed somebody who was more senior than me in career experience um, and more senior than me in age, as quickly as possible, I wanted to be like, nothing's changed. Welcome to the Super Managers Podcast, where we interview leaders from all walks of life to tease out the habits, thought patterns, learnings, and experiences that help them be extraordinary at the fine craft of management. Our goal is to bring you the lessons and the insights so that you don't have to learn through your own mistakes, but so that you can shortcut your way to being a great leader. This podcast is brought to you by Fellow, a software platform that helps managers and their teams collaborate on meeting agendas, track action items, and turn chaotic meetings into productive work sessions. Check it out at www.fellow.app. Hey, fellow managers and leaders, I'm Aiden, and I'm the CEO of fellow.app. Today's guests are a powerful duo, Melissa and Jonathan Nightingale, founders of Raw Signal Group, best-selling authors, and world experts on management and leadership. Melissa has been a startup warrior, previously holding executive roles at companies like Wattpad, and also Mozilla's first director of global public relations. Jonathan has built and operated entire organizations, all the while helping improve diversity. He was previously VP of Firefox for Mozilla and CPO at Hubba. Together, they are co-authors of How Effed Up Is Your Management, a catchy title, but an amazing book about uncomfortable conversations about modern leadership. They are also the writers of Raw Signal's biweekly newsletter about management, and it is a newsletter that we highly recommend to our listeners out there. In today's episode, Melissa and Jonathan share lessons learned from their early management mistakes, and they talk about the importance of owning the management title versus just pushing it away. We also explored a novel perspective on the concept of servant leadership. This is a popular concept out there, and I really enjoyed the contrarian take that Melissa and Jonathan provided during this episode. Last but not least, Melissa and Jonathan explained how to help your team with burnout, and we explored this concept of borrowing from your future self. This episode is full of noteworthy takeaways, resources, different things that will help you to continue to grow as a leader. So without further ado, here are Melissa and Jonathan Nightingale on episode 41 of the Super Managers podcast. Melissa and Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Aiden. Thank you. It's great to be here. You know, I've been looking forward to this uh, for a long time. Uh, you both are very obvious guests for uh, such a podcast that talks about management and leadership. You were, I, I think, to, to a large extent, pioneers um, in teaching management through things like social media and newsletters and, and the blog and your writing and all of this. And, and I think like, you know, to, to get started, I'd, I'd love for you to tell the audience how you both got very interested in management. 
Sure. Um, Go ahead. So Jonathan and I both come from 20 year careers in technology. And when we were first getting rolling, we got promoted very similar times. We were working at Mozilla in the very early days of Firefox. And we both started as individual contributors. Um, And as the organization grew, our teams grew. And as our teams grew, we were really sort of thrown into the deep end and told like, you'll figure it out. This story is so common in technology organizations. But at the time, we sort of thought it was a product of how fast Mozilla was growing, how fast the web was growing. Yeah, you can tell yourself this story that it's, you know, it's situational. You know, obviously other companies would be more intentional and, and careful about this stuff, right? It's, it's a big deal. There's a lot of new skills to learn. Um, maybe it's because we were an open source project. Maybe it's because we were growing faster than we expected to, right? We weren't a standard startup. We didn't have VCs that were going to give us that advice. No, it turns out none of that's true. turns out almost every organization that's growing quickly is field promoting people, uh, giving them management responsibilities based on what? Based on their, their individual competence, right? You're a good engineer. You don't seem to be a sociopath, so we're going to have you manage some engineers, like whatever it is, um, but not giving them the skills necessary to be great at that job. And I think for for both of us, we sort of came up through the like, you'll figure it out, like you're you're clever, you'll sort it out eventually path. And then got to the point where we were running sort of executive roles in fast moving startups and realized like, this is this is entirely learnable stuff. This is stuff that that not only can you learn, but you can skip a lot of the like banging your head against the wall until it's bloody phase. Yeah, it's sort of, you know, it was, it was a mix of like, we had energy about it, but also we were frustrated by it. Like to watch, to watch people have to learn this from, from a blank piece of paper over and over again. There's one thing where it's like, oh, you know, the learning curve, everybody's got to climb that curve. But, but the people on your team are suffering while you're climbing that curve, right? And, and you started to hear more and more stories louder and louder about people really having a bad employment experience. And so much of it to us, without making excuses, so much of it to us was at least partially explained by those those bosses not knowing what they were doing or what was expected of them. And specifically the frustration when we were getting started was that the the loudest voices on this stuff were either coming from academia where they were sort of studying organizational design but not necessarily specific to startup and would put out research that that sort of fell down when you tried to apply it within an organization or it was from the venture capital community where a lot of the folks who were who are sitting and had like a bird's eye view of what was happening with technology startups hadn't operated in a very long time and so when they would make assertions about what it was like to to manage and lead in a growing startup it felt really flat it felt really out of touch and out of date and for us we said like that that isn't our lived experience and nobody out there is talking about what it feels like to actually try and lead in a fast growing org yeah, that's amazing. And uh, I, I think very relevant. And, and you are right, like we don't invest in uh, a lot of leadership training in general, or like it, it tends to be like a one and done thing. Oh, we need to do leadership training. Let's, uh, you know, do this one thing. And then now people are trained, like, let, let's move on. Um, I'm curious how There's it all like no dirtier words in, in startup, right? Then like you're going to management training, right? A lot of folks find that like the, the response internally, when you're told that you're rolling out a program like that is like cross arms, lean back, sort of frustrated. Very skeptical. Very skeptical. And and we get it. We were also very skeptical. And we see that all the time. Like when we start with a new group of of bosses, there's always somebody just sitting back in their chair, right? Even even now that it's all remote, they're sitting back and they're not sure if this is going to be garbage or not, because, because their expectation is not only that like, I have to learn this as I go, but that anybody trying to teach me is going to give me a bunch of stuff that isn't very useful. Yeah, I, I think that that makes a lot of sense. And so what is it that you tell those people that are kind of leaning back, cross-armed in their chair? Like, why should they listen when you're up there and, uh, and running one of your programs? 
I think like you, you can't sort of bang your head on the table or bang, bang your hand on the table and say, well, listen to me because I'm credible because I've worked with thousands of leaders. Like it, it doesn't matter if you don't think that it's going to apply to your work. The most valuable thing we can do is teach you something on Tuesday, have you go try and apply it on Wednesday, find that it works and have you come back hungry to learn more. Like that, that is the credibility is in the, the practical application. Yeah, that's it. There's a, the nice thing about working mostly we don't work exclusively with startups but it's a lot of who we work with the nice thing is that there's this culture of like i can just go learn it right that that if this isn't useful i can drop that tool i can pick up some other tool right so there there's an openness to learning new ideas what they need to do is figure out like are we are we bringing useful tools to the conversation or are we bringing like personality tests and and horoscopes and, and a bunch of stuff that they can't really attach to and um that struggle you can get over really quickly. You just show, don't tell, right? You don't say like, we're credible or you should listen to us because we ran big teams before. You just say like, how are your one-on-ones going? Do they feel awkward and sort of useless? Do you not really know what they're for? Let's talk about how to know whether they're working or not. Like what's some feedback that you're sitting on right now that you haven't given other people in your organization? Like, why is that? Let's talk about how to structure that in a better way. And they, they go through the process and they're like, oh crap, that that actually would be much more useful. I'm going to go try that tomorrow because it, because it's solving a real problem they have. And for a lot of organizations, when like your management and leadership is the thing that's most on fire, you know it because your team basically like you double in size, but you have half the output. That's a management problem, right? Like if you if you have sort of twice as many resources in terms of like the humans actually typing on keyboards, but half as much work is getting done. That's usually a time where people know it's time to call us. Although, you know, it's funny that it's true. People do call us, but they don't always diagnose it. Right. So they'll say like, they'll say something like my team's moving really slowly or my team is uh, infighting. Right. There's different people working on different things. They lack a sense of urgency. They're just sort of in their own little bubbles. And we say, well, how's your goals process? And they're like, well, you know, we tried OKRs and we, the first quarter they worked and the second quarter, I think engineering still does them, but we sort of let them fall off. And we're like, so let's walk you through that, right? That often they can they can name the problem without really understanding what's underlying it. And, and when you give them those tools with a framework that says like, this is how this thing accomplishes this thing for your business, it starts to all click together. It's, it's the best thing for us to watch those those skeptics lean forward because they, they want they want there to be something useful here. They don't want their job as a manager to be like a, a scam, right? But they've just, they've encountered a bunch of really awful management writing or contradictory tools and, and they just need some clarity. Yeah, I love that. So, and that's a good, good kind of point uh, to take, which is, uh, if you have increased in size and your output seems to have slowed down, it's not because that's just what happens uh, with scale, and and maybe that's something that's acceptable and uh, that that's worthy of note and probably a management problem. Well, one thing I wanted to do though uh, was just go back to uh, your earlier careers. I mean, you know, today you teach thousands of leaders management lessons. You've written a book called how fucked up is your management, which is an awesome title. You've done all these things, but I'm curious if, if we were to go back to your early careers and, you know, you talked about it being painful for teams to kind of sit back and be subject to you learning and climbing up this, this learning curve. Uh, what were some of the mistakes that you each made early in your careers that you, you obviously have now corrected? Do you want me to go first? Sure. <laughs> all right. Uh, 
I, early in my management career, I found it really uncomfortable to be a boss. And it is, it's a really uncomfortable thing for a lot of people, this shift from going from, I'm a peer, we work together and there's no power dynamic to, I'm now in charge of you. The, there's an inclination to give that power away as quickly as possible. And so the first time I managed somebody who was more senior than me in career experience um, and more senior than me in age, as quickly as possible, I wanted to be like, nothing's changed. You just do it, you do what you do, it's great, but I will just sort of step on and sort of be on the sidelines and not really manage. Um, and I think anytime you as a leader, or at least for sort of for my own career, anytime I as a leader specifically put down aspects of management and said like, those are tools that are management tools, but I'm not going to use them. There's a, there's a good kick to ask why. And so in terms of things I got wrong really early on, um, just just pretending that the power dynamic didn't exist was a, was a big mistake. You know, for me, we talk with so many bosses and some of them have had really horrendous management experiences of their own. But for me coming up, I didn't, my, my default experience, I had four or five, maybe six different managers before I got my first management gig. And the word I would use for all of them was just sort of apathetic, right? They just didn't take management very seriously. They, they'd show up for the occasional one-on-one. It's like eating your vegetables. They knew they had to do it. But like, I was really the one pushing for any, any change in my role in my work, whatever. Um, And I said to myself, I remember thinking, you know, the first day I become a manager, I'm going to be better than they ever were because I'm going to give a shit. That's it. I'm just, I'm just going to care. And in the process of caring, I'm going to show up for my people really differently than my own bosses have shown up for me. And, and I did, I I had long searching one-on-ones. I gave them lots of feedback, lots of opportunity for growth. Congratulations, Jonathan. What a great boss you are. I had run to the other side of the boat. I was like, utterly ineffective at giving them feedback when they screwed up. I was utterly ineffective at holding them accountable for missed deadlines, for missed commitments to other teams, because I was so focused on the relationship and them having the experience of a, of a caring and involved boss that I'd lost the plot on effectiveness for my team and like what we were accountable for and whether I was pushing them. And that was a hard thing for me to unlearn, right? How to, how do you step back into holding those people accountable and not worry that you're going to jeopardize the relationships you just spent so long building, particularly with people who used to be your peers. Like that was, it took me work to undo that one and realize that that doesn't hurt my working relationship with those people. It just makes the boundaries clearer. Um, but that is, is easy for me to spot that as a mistake now. Uh, I feel like uh, both of what you said have uh, similarities in that, you know, y- you, Melissa, wanted to give away control as soon as you got it. And I feel like there's a lot of relatedness to holding people accountable. And I find that it is also particularly challenging if you do have someone who is senior in years or in experience than you. How did you both turn it around? Um, Like, how how did you realize that, you know, Jonathan, you were being too friendly uh, and Melissa, you weren't taking the control? Like, how did you, how do you pivot out of that kind of situation if you happen to be in it? For me... It took a while, but for me, I started to really internalize, like, wait a minute, I'm being paid to do a job. It probably wasn't until I was a director, honestly, that the, the penny dropped for me. I'm being paid to do a job. I got a bunch of people on payroll as part of my organization, and we're here to do something, right? I started to be involved in director's meetings and and be asked by my peers in directorship and above um, what what my team was committed to, right? And how we were going to deliver that. And the more I started to engage with, like, oh, crap, like, I have 14 people on payroll in a startup fully costed, even back then, that's a couple million dollars that the organization is spending to get what, right? And as I started to be in conversation with my peers and management, that's when I realized, like, 
I have an obligation here to the organization. I have, I have things that I'm being paid to get done for us. And then I would turn around to my team and be like, wait a minute, we're not going to get these things done. And, and how do I do that? And, and sort of pulling that into conversation and saying like, yes, I, my, my relationship with my team is a superpower. It means I can ask a lot of them because they trust me, but I need to get clearer on what I'm actually committed to. That for me was a real unlock, realizing that, that I had an obligation, not just to my people, not to be a, a shit umbrella. Like you hear people use that language, right? I just got to insulate them. I just got to get everything out of the way so that they can focus on their work. That's part of it. But also that we're making a set of commitments. We're accountable to other parts of the organization to, to fulfill those commitments. And that once I really let that in and started writing goals that advance the organization's goals, instead of just writing down what my team was doing and calling those my goals, it was a real inversion for me and, and a powerful one. It didn't hurt my relationships with my people. It gave them some stretch. It gave them a, a North star. Yeah. And I think for me, I think the, the mistakes that you make that you're making because it's the first time you're doing something often having an opportunity to like really just sort of to basically screw it up, but then you're like, okay, well, I know what that mistake is. I'm not going to make it again. And I think the mistake of that peer to boss transition and not making those, those sort of roles and that power differential sort of better defined, you do that once. Ideally, you don't do that every time. Right. And so I think for a lot of leaders, the, the challenge of, of sort of going from being in a peer relationship to being in a boss dynamic, once you've done it, then the next time you, you are more clear about it because you know the implications, you know the downside of it. And so for me, when I, when I sort of walked into roles where I was hiring my team or where I had peers who sort of came into a management relationship with me, just being really clear in the first one-on-one -on -one of like, hey, like saying out loud, like, this is weird. We used to be peers. We're not peers anymore. And so here's what the, here's what the expectations are and here's what shifted. But I think for, for, for me that pretend that nothing has shifted, it, it clearly had. Yeah. If I connect those dots, I think the thing that we're both really saying is the, that you have to sit in the job, that it's a real job. And there's such a temptation. Melissa said it, there's such a temptation to pretend it's a fake one. And I've, I've heard so many bosses. I've been the boss saying it's just a new business card. Like nothing really changes about the work that we're doing. Like, I got to sit in more meetings than you do. But other than that, like you're the one doing the real work. I'm just administrative overhead. Like all of that stuff is a way of not owning what the job actually is that like, I have an obligation here. I've got work that I've got to do. It's, it's legitimate work. And that work is around communication and coordination of effort, which is, which is important, especially as an organization grows. Yeah. I think so much good stuff falls out of, of sitting in the, it is a real job and it's a real job that I can do well or poorly. Like we, we said it before, a lot of what we teach leaders how to do is how to assess whether it's going well or poorly. And that starting point of like, it's a real job. It is a set of discrete skills and they're skills that you can get better at. You can sort of like, I, I think we work with heavy technical organizations who like to sort of take things apart and put them back together and making it scrutable is one of the, the pieces that's really helpful for a lot of leaders is like, can I, can I stare it down and say, how is it working? And if it isn't working, can we talk through what do I do instead? Yeah. One of the things that you said, uh, Jonathan, this management overhead concept, you know, it. I sit in more meetings, you do the actual work. Why do you think that people just generally have this this almost like uh, distaste for, for management, especially like I, I feel especially in technical organizations. But where does this come from? And why is it that we have this perception um, of managers in general? Is it just because we have so many bad bosses out there? Or like, why is it? I think that's half of it. Yeah. I think that like, would you, would you want a business card that says like, you know, that gives you the label that is the butt of every joke. And, and, you know, even if you sort of ignore that, that is often very ineffective, 
right? Like there, there are great engineers and, and poor engineers. There are great marketers and poor marketers, right? But many people have had an experience that involves a lot of really bad management. Even if they've had a great boss, they remember that person because they're such a standout, right? Because people they reported to before and after that person were really mediocre. Like it's, it's a weird thing that we do that with the exception of MBAs, which is not quite the same as first line management anyway, um, nobody goes to school for management. They go to school for whatever their individual discipline was. And then we elevate them into management and we don't equip them. And then we, we act surprised that they're incompetent. So I think, I think that's one piece of it. And I think the other piece is the thing Melissa was talking about, about being really uncomfortable owning that power. That it's really, you want to do everything you can to, to not seem like you're putting yourself above other people and, and you're not above them but you do have power that is that you got to reckon with. I also think like in terms of why specifically tech doesn't value management or, or historically has had a hard time valuing management. It's like so much of how we write our stories around how tech organizations come up, how startups are built is like either like lone wolf in a dorm room, right? And there's not a lot of sort of priority on collaboration in that moment, right? Like it, it, if it's just me in a dorm room hacking on a computer or me in a basement somewhere hacking on a computer, like there's not a lot of management in that story, honestly. Um, and I think it, it's also one of the things where if you think about tech organizations as they grow, there are there are a bunch of things sort of early on where it, where you're like, four people around a table, right? And in that moment, there isn't a lot of management present in that moment, but as the organization scales, you hear you hear this sort of more, like it got to 150 people, it got to 200 people, it got to a thousand people, and the, the wheels started feeling like they were coming off. And, and even in those moments, we don't ascribe that to being a management failure. We talk about that being a, a sort of byproduct of success, but I think it, it's because management is missing from a lot of how we tell our startup stories. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. One question that, you know, it is kind of related is, you know, you were saying that, you know, sometimes you're going to have a boss and, um, and then, and then you do comparing, well, this boss is a lot better, a lot worse than, you know, who I had before. And, uh, and then, you, you know, you may make some judgments based on that. And when you become a manager, take on certain qualities. But one of the questions I have is, is it possible that there's this thing of like a manager and kind of employee fit, like be, besides like this concept of a cultural fit, is it possible that like, like uh, sometimes that there isn't a fit between like a manager and employee. And it's not that it's a bad employer, it's not a bad manager, but maybe it's just like a bad fit for that team or the way that that team happens to operate. Sometimes. Sometimes. But the, the sometimes, but the, the broader risk there in terms of like, if I've got a boss who says like, it's just not a fit is that like, what, what the reason that it's not a fit is that I have a bunch of assumptions in my head that I have failed to say out loud and that person is bad at guessing them. And we see this all the time in organizations that a lot of leaders, they, they make the first hire and the first hire is in their own image. The first hire is somebody who thinks like them, may, may look physically like them, but certainly like came up through a path that is very similar to their own path. And that the more folks sort of deviate from that model, the harder they ha time they have being managed by that person. So the shove for the leader in that moment is, is maybe, maybe you, you've got sort of a misfit or a misalignment there, but where have you done work to make sure that you're creating, a, that your management style is one where a lot of different people can thrive within your organization? Because if you only have a leadership style that works for people who are like you, you've got some limitations. And I would say you, you've got some bias that you're bringing to the role. That's it. It's, it's not that it never occurs. It's that it's a really dangerous lens to especially to apply to your own management because you're going to use it as a rationalization like there's a there's a great bit of danger in that that you're gonna 
that if, if I look at a, a thousand cases of manager employee misfit, I boldly predict I'm going to see gender difference. I'm going to see racial difference. I'm going to see ability difference, right? That I'm, that the people who just naturally I tend to vibe with are people where I share a great deal of life experience and that the people that weirdly just happen to not be a good fit are the ones who come from a really different background uh, or who are dealing with a different sort of life context right now. And that it's not that it will never happen that a fully competent manager will just be not really compatible with how someone wants to be managed, but it's very rare because a fully competent manager knows how to talk to different people and, and situate things and, and clarify expectations and not take for granted a bunch of those shared assumptions. And it's one of the things we say to the bosses we work with, like most people show up wanting to do a good job at work. Sometimes you have someone who's just really, who's, who's fried, who's, who's burnt out, whatever it is, and just wants to sabotage the business. Most people want to do good work, to be recognized for good work, to collaborate with people that they respect, right? And so in most cases, a boss who's doing a clear job of articulating expectations and measures for success and stuff like that is going to find employees thriving. Um, that's, that's the danger. It's just, it becomes a rationalization. It becomes a tool for justifying exclusion with a different name. And we talked to leaders about this idea of super fucking clear, right? Like, are you being <laughs> super fucking clear? And like, not, not like, am I clear in my own mind, but like specifically like staring it down, like, did you, did you say it in a way that was super fucking clear? And for a lot of leaders, like just getting, getting practiced at maybe that means I have to play a little bit with like, I said it this way in this meeting and I'm going to say it a different way the next time, just to make sure that I'm, I'm really communicating what I need to here. Yeah. There's a, it's, you're allowed to expect your people to show up like grownups at work. You're allowed to expect that if you hire, you know, a, a, a bookkeeper that they know about bookkeeping. Right. Um, but so many bosses have so many things that they consider to be obvious that they've never said out loud, right? Melissa wrote a post, uh, that's a chapter in the book uh, called Obvious to You is Not the Same as Obvious. And that shove is really important for a lot of bosses that you are going to take things for granted because of your time with the organization, because of your access to the CEO, because of your whatever it is, um, and be surprised when other people don't act on that obvious information. And it's always worth asking yourself, is that a professional failure on that person's part? Are they just not competent at the thing we hired them for? Or are they missing context that, that I have and that I've done a bad job of sharing? I would love an example of super fucking clear. What's a, I mean, it, it, you know, if it's an imaginary one, if it's an anonymized one of a situation where like maybe an expectation wasn't clear and how you go about the process of figuring out, because this is one of the hardest things, right? Like it's uh, not just like a human, like a relationship like issue. It's also like a business issue, right? Like you go into business, you have this idea, you may have these assumptions and maybe you haven't like clearly articulated to yourself or done the deep work of like, what are the assumptions we're making, um, you know, in our business plan that we're not like outright saying. And I think it's, it's probably the same in, in, I guess, work relationships. So yeah, if there is an example, would, would love uh, to hear one. Hey there, before moving to the next part of the interview, quick interjection to tell you about one of the internet's best kept secrets the Manager TLDR newsletter. So every two weeks, we read the best content out there, the greatest articles, the advice, the case studies, whatever the latest and greatest is, we summarize it 
and we send it to your inbox. We know you don't have the time to read everything, but because we're doing the work, we'll summarize it and send it to your inbox once every two weeks. And the best news, it's completely free. So go on over to fellow.app slash newsletter and sign up today. And with that said, let's go back to the interview. Sometimes they're really small, right? So a lot of bosses avoid structure because it, it feels rigid and procedural and stuff. So they don't do things like like uh, have an agenda for a one-on-one or record action, action items coming out of it, right? But if you start doing that, it becomes pretty easy in our next one-on-one to check in and say, hey, you said you were going to email marketing about the thing. Did you email marketing about the thing? Like, no, I didn't do that. Once, okay, fine. Like everybody's, particularly during a pandemic, everybody's going to have dropped balls from time to time, right? The recording of action items is supposed to be a way that, that we help each other remember those things. But if it becomes a continuing thing, one of the, the phrases we have bosses practice is my expectation is, right? My expectation is that if we say a thing's going to happen, that you do whatever you need to do on your side and let me know if you need other things from me, but that, that you've committed to that and that thing's going to happen. And, and once I get it, but on an ongoing basis, this is a problem because my expectation is that the commitments we make in this room happen, right? That that is very uncomfortable for some bosses to say, especially bosses like me early in my career that was so focused on the, the relationship. We also see it in organizational values, right? We'll see organizations or we'll hear from organizations that say like people are behaving in a way that is not in keeping with how they should behave within this organization. We're like, cool, where was that written down? And they're like, well, they're, they're yelling at each other, like full on yelling at each other. They're screaming in meetings. I'm like, okay. Is, is, is that, do you have it anywhere that that's not how you do within your organization, right? That the expectation in your organization is that like people are, maybe you disagree respectfully or whatever, whatever it is. And for a lot of folks, they feel like, well, that's, that is obvious, right? Like clearly you're not going to go into a, a meeting and just like yell at your colleagues, but there are cultures where they do, right? We've there, worked in those cultures. We've worked in those cultures. There are cultures where that that's just how you show that you're passionate about your perspective is that you, you're willing to go to the mat for it. And I think for a lot of founders in particular, we have a set of things where, where we, we just like know that that would be totally out of bounds. If you haven't written it down and you're onboarding people into your organization without saying it, somebody's going to, going to sort of like trip that wire and, and it won't be their fault if you didn't tell them. This is really important too, because we, we see this all the time, especially with love in my heart with founders and CEOs where they discover an expectation they didn't realize they had, where they discover (laughs) a value they didn't realize they had, right. That somebody does something and they're like, Oh shit. Like we never wrote that down. We never, we were never clear about it. And sometimes it's really minor stuff. Like if you ask a hundred hiring managers, whether they expect to receive thank you notes, 50 of them will go to the mat and be like, if you don't send me a thank you note, you're out. I don't care how great you are. And the other 50 are like, is it the 1870s? No, you don't need to send me a thank you note. Like, but that expectation is like, as a candidate, that's totally impacting my ability to get a role in your organization. And I don't, if I was raised with that, then I have that. And if I wasn't, then I don't. And like, how am I, I I would be so happy to write a thank you note. Right. But whatever it is, being able to articulate that and spot it when somebody pisses you off, be like, okay, wait, did we, did we ever say that that was a thing? Right. You, You can say, oh, we should take some things as common sense, but we can also just be declarative. Similarly during lockdown, we've got bosses who are sending emails at 11 o'clock at night. Is the expectation that I respond to that email at 11 o'clock at night or is the expectation that I wait until tomorrow morning 
when I'm sort of clear-headed and awake and have had coffee. And, and either one can be the right answer for your organization. I have a preference about which one I'd like it to be if it's an organization where I'm working, but either one can be correct. But if you haven't said it out loud, like how, how am I, if I'm new within your, your team, how do I know? And eager to please, right? And I see an email from my boss at 11 o'clock and I, I just start this habit of checking my email in the middle of the night just to make sure I didn't miss anything. And my boss might be mortified to hear that that's what I'm doing because that was not their intent at all. Just super fucking clear. Yep. Is that what you want or is that not what you want? That's so interesting. Um, it reminds me of a situation that, you know, we were discussing this uh, at work, which was, you know, obviously pandemic, people working from home, uh, you have kids coming onto the screen or a dog comes in and like, or a cat walks over your laptop or one of the, these sorts of situations. And, and someone on our team was saying like, you know, sometimes I feel embarrassed like that, you know, something like this happens. And so, um, maybe we should we should have uh, make it permissible that people can have uh, their video off or you know or, or go on mute or something. And I was like, yeah, I mean, I think that makes sense. Yeah, why don't you just do that? It's like, oh well, like I, I didn't know that that was okay. And it, it's it's kind of like, oh, <laughs> I just assumed that everybody knew that. Well, yeah, obviously everyone's at home, so clearly like these things are going to happen. But it wasn't super fucking clear, like you said. <laughs> Oh, I mean, I'll give you an example, right? We're working with leaders and we're doing like leadership training, management training with, with bosses all over the world right now. And one of the things that happens is we get on and they're like, is it okay if I chew? Yeah. Like, is it, is it cool if I eat while we do training? And, we're like, and so we, we, we obviously shifted sort of our pattern to, to say out loud, of course, like, please feed yourselves. We don't want to teach like hangry managers about sort of delivering hard feedback. Like that's a hard that's a hard audience, but a lot of folks, I think, feel like it, unless you've said it out loud, like my, you know, I, I'm not sure. And I'm living in this sort of in-between space of what's okay and what's not okay. Yeah. You know, every, fundamentally, every space has rules, right? And I don't mean that in an authoritarian way. I just mean that we have shared expectations. Um, we always do. Zoom rooms are a great example, right? Where we always do. But, but in a context where new people are coming in, they don't know the rules. And so a fair question for any corporate culture, for any manager anywhere is like, how are they going to learn them? And, and for that matter, do the, do the five of us on my team all have the same understanding of what they are, right? So anytime we start work with a new group, for instance, we've got a set of things. We're like, here's how the conversations go in here. Here's what we're asking you all to commit to. And, and here's what we're committing to as well. And there's even stuff where we say like, here's how we Zoom right? Have the participant window open and the chat window open because we know that some people will not put their hand up to ask a question, but they will put it in the chat. And we want everybody to sort of be in the same place, right? That that, that kind of, you know, you, un you own your unmute button. If you need to jump in, just jump in. But we reserve the right to mute you if you go to the bathroom and forget to mute it. Like maybe those things are obvious, but saying them out loud, just it, it just lowers everybody's sort of burnout levels in a time where everybody's burnout levels are very high uh, and makes it clear, like, these are the rules of the space. I understand them. And we all heard Jonathan and Melissa say them together. So we're all working from the same page. I, I know I'm allowed to unmute if I need to. I know I'm allowed to eat if I need to. And it's not about coddling, right? If you've got bosses listening who are like, that sounds like coddling. It's not about coddling. It's about creating the space for your people to do innovative work, right? And if you want them spending, spending all of their brain cycles on whether it's okay to face mute or not face mute, they can spend all their brain cycles on that. But probably you've got more important challenges that you need them solving. And so the more you can relax the like, 
the just the noise and the shit like then and sort of get that out of the way the more opportunity you've got for folks in your organization to do really amazing work so i there is something that i i wanted to ask you because we you know we started off the conversation talking about accountability acknowledging like that this is a different role and there are powers that you now have i'm curious because one of the things that is a very popular language today is uh, servant leadership. Um, and I think like when you just say the term servant leadership, it just sounds like, you know, it's it, it's a one-sided thing and it almost sounds like you have no power. So I, I'm, I'm curious what your, um, if you agree with the concept of servant leadership or like how you define it and how it can actually be practiced. It's such a delicious phrase, isn't it? Servant leader, like if you're somebody who, who feels uncomfortable having power over other people and you find this sentence, you're like, that's what I am. I'm that, right? Because it just, it gives you a, a smart sounding way to give away all that power and say, oh no, they we're inverting the, you know, you don't report to me. I report to you. My whole job is just to get obstacles out of your way. It sounds delicious. Um, if you, if you want to dive into it, it comes from an essay from the seventies by Robert Greenleaf, the, the leader as a servant. Um, and that essay is fine. I think it's, it's a good thing. I think Melissa and I would both agree that, the leaders should understand their role to be at least partly about helping their people thrive, right? That that's, that's a real core element of it. It's not about lording power over them. It's really about creating a space where they can be excellent. And so in that, that much, I totally am here for. What we've learned is that a lot of the people who use that phrase, sort of like before when we were talking about, oh, there's just not a good manager employee fit. A lot of the people who use servant leader as a self-describing phrase um, are using it as a way to give away power and have not done the work, right? That servants don't fire people. Servants don't say you're not getting a raise. Servants don't say you screwed up. And like, if, if you do that again, I can't put you in meetings with clients anymore, right? Those are not, those are not things that a servant says. Uh, and it's, it's worth asking yourself, like, is that, are, are you doing those things? Because hard feedback is service, right? But, but a lot of people who take that phrase on for themselves are using it as a way to get out of the awkward parts of management. Yeah. I think for a lot of leaders, like servant, like the idea of servant leadership comes from a really beautiful place, sort of the authoritarian, awful job of management. And they are trying to react to a set of things. But when you look at it in practice, when you you sort of talk to folks who are doing that work or folks who are managed by people who self-identify as servant leaders, often there's a massive gap in terms of, of whether folks are actually managed like, like capital M managed, are they doing the management or have they sort of like sort of stand on the sidelines and, and are back to shit umbrella? Yeah, I think that that's a very valuable way to look at it. And it definitely is a spectrum. Uh, you know, one of the, we had uh, Jean-Michel, who's the CTO at uh, Shopify on the show. And one of the things that he mentioned was he called it like the 25, 50, 25 rule. So uh, 25% of the time, you know, I'm your boss and I'm going to tell you and hold you accountable and so on and so forth. 25%, you're my boss and, you know, I'm going to unblock you and help you. And 50% of the time, we're peers. We're going to brainstorm and work together and problem solve. And I just like that because it wasn't, it, it, it seemed less like a, there's just like a one size fits all. Like, this is the model, just do that. It's, you know, and, and don't stray from it. But it's Tokum. <laughs> it's total bullshit. Like, with respect to Jean Michel, like, it's total bullshit that you are never not my boss. Even when we're peers, you can still fire me. Even when we're pretending that I'm your boss, like, you can still decide whether I get a raise or not. Like, there's no point in time where you as my boss are not my boss. And it, it, it's so attractive. And I get what he's trying to say. He's trying to, he's trying to describe like a, 
a workflow scenario about like how many of my utterances are meant to be command utterances and how many of my utterances are meant to be consensus utterances, right? Okay. But, but framing matters. And, and it's really hard. I have been, I've been on a team with a VPN when I was a director and or a manager where I wanted, like where we wanted to be friends and where he wanted to be friends, where he didn't want to have that sort of title Right. Where we'd go out, we, we traveled a lot at Mozilla, where we'd go out to the hotel bar and just talk about whatever. And like, isn't it nice that we're peers? And maybe he felt that, but I, but I never did. You never forget that like, this is a person who can promote you or not. This is a person who's showing affinity to you. And that generally is a, a positive forward looking indicator. Right. And that like, if I say, no, nah, I don't really want to do that. I'm not going to get fired probably. Um, but I've, I've missed Right. That might be a career limiting move to do that. And, and hopefully not. And hopefully that leader governs themselves in ways that is, is more equitable than that. But it's a it's a dangerous signal to send. And, and when somebody self describes that way, I'm like, I don't know. I don't know what it's like to work for you. I don't know how true that is of the, the people who work for you. But I know that for me, bosses who who wanted to be peers might have believed that. And I, I never did. Hmm. That's definitely a very different way to look at it. I definitely, I see the point. You're right. It does never change. And, and that's always there. And it was very interesting just to hear like the way that you put it, which is like, even if you as a manager think that you're acting like a peer, the person on the other side definitely is not. It's easy to miss that. It matters a lot in, in tech, in part because we have such blurry lines between when we're in a work context and when we're socializing, less so during pandemic, obviously, but but sort of in the before times when you you leave the office and everybody's grabbing a drink, like, are you are you my, my boss boss in that moment or are you my peer? And like, if I have like a third drink and I say something foolish, is, is that okay? Is that not okay? Is that showing up in my performance review? Like there's just a whole bunch around it where, where I would prefer that if you're in a management role, like you just recognize that the boss hat does not come off. Yeah. We had, we worked for a CEO part of our time at Mozilla um, when Mozilla was growing very quickly and, and he got caught flat footed because he would say in meetings, you know, he'd been a, a designer at Apple before that, and he really liked getting into the product details. And um, he would say in meetings, well, have we thought about doing it this other way, right? And, and just ask the question. And then three months later, realized that there was a whole product branch built off the CEO's direction to think about going another way, right? And he's like, no, I was just asking a question, right? And it's just, it's a moment of not understanding the power that you hold in the room and wielding it really carefully, right? That that it might feel cumbersome to say, I'm not asking this as the CEO. I'm just asking a design question because I'm invested in it. This is not direction. Like that might feel like so much work, but obvious to you is not the same as obvious. It was obvious in that moment to him that he was just asking a question as a peer on the team. That is not how, you know, employee 136 who had only ever experienced him as their managers, 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 manager received that feedback. Right. And so it's just, I guess I would say to the people listening to the podcast, be careful. If you are tempted to self-describe that way, I, I you can't read other people's minds, but it, there is a high likelihood that your team does not experience that the way you do. And you don't want to be in a position where you're self-evaluating your management very differently than your team is experiencing your management. That's, uh, that is fascinating. And I love the framing of 
that's not how employee 136, who's only experienced you as, you know, the manager's manager's manager uh, is going to perceive that. So I think it's very interesting. One of the guests that we had on board was talking about her experience doing stand-up comedy. And one of the things that she brought up is like, in order to be a very effective comedian, you have to first understand how the audience is going to perceive you. Like when they look at you, just like by looking at you, how do they kind of perceive you and, you know, some of the stereotypes that they might associate with you. And then like, you have to understand that first before you can start to communicate. And I, I feel like it, it, it is the same if your manager, your CEO, your VP, there's a lot that comes and, and you, you kind of have to understand that before you start to communicate. I love that. I think, I think that makes a ton of sense and, and is a, a much better framing of it to say like, I think any manager at any level of seniority would be better at their job if they started by saying like that. How do I, what is it when I come into a room? What is it when I ask a question? What is it when I send an email? And, and from that place, how do I adjust the, the conversation I'm having to, to acknowledge that? We also talked to leaders about this idea that there's like a, a trifecta of needs that we're always trying to balance, which is like, who am I? What does my team need from me as a leader? Like, who am I as a leader? What does my team need from me as a leader? And then what does the organization as a whole need from me as a leader? And sometimes those things are like, super well aligned and sometimes they're way out of step. And for a lot of leaders, like just figuring out sort of how to manage that, that triangle of needs, um, I think it can be really helpful. It will not surprise you to hear that, you know, anytime we're working with bosses, one of the first things we open with is like, here are practical skills that you can learn on Tuesday and apply on Wednesday. That's really important, right? Not just because there are real skills and we want them to have those skills, but also because seeing that investing in your management can, can pay off is a really important entry point. But by the end of our programs, more of the work is on who am I as a leader and is it working for me, right? Like I, I tend to bias all the way towards consensus and it means my team loves me, but it means we're very slow to reach decisions. Is that, is that good or bad? And if I, don't, if I don't think that's working for me, how can I be intentional about moving it, right? That, that self-awareness is, you know, it's a, it's a good predictor of long-term management success, but it's, it's hard. It, it is some work that, that is different than learning the skills, but also really important. Yeah. And it's, it's also the sort of thing that, you know, I get the sense it, it's not a one and done. It's, it's a constant, I mean, self-awareness, I feel like is a spectrum. I, it's probably like driving and that everybody thinks they're better than average, but uh, it's a spectrum and, and you're always working on it. Um, one thing I, I did want to, um, you know, ask you as, as we're getting uh, close to time is you have this, uh, you have this amazing newsletter and you were just telling me about the, the domain name. Uh, what is the domain name again? Shopping for domains is the best. Yeah, uh, the domain name is worldsbestnewsletter.com. And I have <laughs> no idea still why that was available for purchase. Problem solved. And right? it wasn't, it was like one of those like $3.99 domains. Uh, it was just sort of kicking around. I'm like, how has nobody scooped this up? Yeah, I mean, obviously you can find it on our corporate site, right? It's on rawsignal.ca, but but worldsbestnewsletter.com is, is the one that people remember. Yeah. And, you know, the thing I, I really love about your newsletter is that we always know what's on top of your mind, the latest and greatest things uh, that you've read and, and your commentary about. So it feels very current. So it's not just management, but it's also like management with a current lens. And uh, there is this one, I guess, like issue where, where you talked about this, this concept of borrowing from your future self. And, and I thought it was just like a very clever way to phrase the concept. And I'd love for you to talk about what it means to borrow from your future self for leaders. 
I mean, this is something that we we were seeing a lot where we're talking to you in March, right? So it's about a year into lockdowns and a lot of leaders leading from a, a pandemic place. And one of the things that we were seeing was that, that more of the bosses that we were talking to um, wanted to talk about burnout, not only for their own teams, but for themselves. And it, was, it, it wasn't like a little shift. It was like a 400% increase in terms of the number of times we would hear burnout in conversation with bosses. Yeah, it's, it, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm careful about using a word like dire, but like a lot of the, a lot of the bosses that we were talking to are trying their best. Um, but the questions are getting, it's not just about like, how do I help a, an employee with burnout? It's how do I help all my employees with burnout when I'm also burnt out, right? The, there, there's a real depth to it. And there's so many articles out there that say, well, you need self-care, you know, you just need to, if you need to take a break for a couple hours, just give yourself a massage in your chair or whatever you should do that. And it's, that's great. That sounds great. Um, but many of the bosses that we talk to can't, they're slammed because like they don't have casual conversations anymore. Um, everything has to be a zoom call. And so their zoom calls are getting time sliced, you know, 15 minutes, 10 minutes at a time. And they're, you know, and their work day has increased by two or three hours a day. And there's just, there's no room for it. And so we said, okay, so maybe present you is screwed. Maybe present you, your calendar's totally booked up, right? But, but we need to start to build systems in place because you know it can't keep going this way. You know it's not sustainable. And so that's when we started talking about future you. Yeah, and how do you put in the things in place today? Like we were talking to leaders who were so underwater that they, their HR team would be like, take a vacation, just take, take a couple comp days, like sign off, unplug, turn off Slack, whatever, it's gonna be okay. They would take the days and they would, they would have like a week of Sunday scaries, right? Where they're just, the, the feeling in their gut was so much stress at what they'd be coming back to that they didn't even get any of the, the sort of relaxation or any of the benefit of taking a week and unplugging because it was all dominated by the anxiety of what they'd face when they came back. And so we started saying like, you, you, can't, you can't fix that in that moment, but you can start to build forward. And as you're thinking about what it's like to build forward, just looking at your calendar and saying like, where are there decisions that I can make right now in service of my future self? So if I am a team lead and I'm responsible for individual contribution and responsible for management, and I don't have any more flow to be able to do my own work, like if your flow isn't on the calendar, your flow isn't happening or your flow is happening like after hours at nine o'clock at night or 11 o'clock at night. And so just talking to leaders about like, where can you build it back in so that when you, when you go to reach for it, it's there. That's it. The, you know, the core idea of that newsletter was that if you look forward, maybe it's next week for you, maybe it's a month out. There's some place on your calendar that still has room, right? Even with all the recurring meetings, a lot of what's, what's eating up our days right now is the, the little drive-bys. They're like, hey, can I just get some time today, right? Um, but the nice thing about those is that those people asking for time will route around the existing blocks in your calendar. And so a thing that you can do is you can look a couple of weeks ahead to where there is some space and you can start to block that off and say, this week sucks. It sucks for the same reason the last week sucked, right? But three weeks out, I've actually got some room and I'm, we're way overdue to do some team planning or to think about like, we haven't even written 2021 corporate goals yet, whatever the thing is, and say like, I'm going to block time there. And it's not perfect, right? I think one of the greatest crimes that Google has ever committed is that when somebody sends you a uh, calendar invite, it automatically gets added to your calendar. And so everybody else gets to control your time and that's really hard. But most people will avoid the existing blocks. They'll try and find the white space on your calendar and book something in there. And so if you've got a private block in there or if it's gonna be suspicious to have a private block, schedule it with the peer and say, this is our two hour sync up and just the two of you are helping each other now, right? Because you've both got that. 
and you can be on Zoom together quietly typing or, or not, but finding that protection is a thing that you can do today to, to help future you because current you has already been screwed by past you. I love that framing. It's it's uh, it's so nice to be able to refer to 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 these as different people. Uh, it just uh, allows you to think about things in a different way. I I love that, uh, Melissa Jonathan. This has been incredible. Uh, so many great insights, and uh, you know so many things to to kind of reference. And and I'm excited to share this with everyone. One question that we always leave our speakers and and our audience with is uh, what parting advice, resources, tips, or just, you know, words of wisdom would you have for all the managers and leaders out there looking to get better at their craft? I mean, I'd say right now, a lot of leader is the part that we tend to, to be the, the, the tool that we tend to sort of overuse or the, the muscle that tends to be overworked in our own management practice is the, the down orientation, right? Is I, as a manager, focusing on my team and the people who report to me and the muscle that's underdeveloped right now, particularly because we're not physically seeing those people in person is the across muscle. The across management muscle for most organizations is, is essentially the success or failure of that organization. But for a lot of leaders, I don't see those people. They are far from me. I'm not in meetings with them. I'm connected to my own team, but the connection and the link between myself as a leader and the other leaders in the organization, they've atrophied now is a great time to go reinvest in building those muscles. Yeah, not just because it's nice to know what other people are working on, but because it's very hard to prioritize for your own team if you don't know how it connects to other pieces, right? That when everybody's fried and you're like, something's got to drop, you're the one we're paying to have the broader context. You're the one who's got to see what's going on in other parts of the org so that I know as a person on your team, which things I can put down and which things we absolutely have to deliver because other parts of the organization are counting on us. And we've got so much space for how hard it is to do that right now. And, but, but it's the thing that only you can do, that, that your team can't do for you, that you can't delegate off because you're in different meetings than they are. And for a lot of folks, like part of how we, we help future you is we stop doing work twice. And in a lot of organizations right now, we're doing work twice because we just don't have the ambient awareness of where the other work is happening within the organization. And the last thing I think I'd say on that is that, you know, maybe obviously because of the work that we do, but if you're a boss and you've never gotten any training, you're not alone. 80% of the leaders out there have never had any training. The, the stat is that between the first time you get management as a job and the first time you get training, it's about 12 years. Wow. So most of the people doing it have never been taught how to do it. You're not alone on that, but it's not fair, right? And so whether you got to talk to HR, whether you've got internal tools, whether you can get mentorship from somebody more senior, finding some way to start building some systems around this stuff is, is how you get yourself above water. Like it's a learnable set of skills. It's not just a natural thing that you're born with or not born with. And so if you're struggling with it right now, get some help on, on learning those fundamentals. It, it's going gonna, it's gonna to unlock some stuff for you. I say like nobody comes out of the womb knowing how to direct the work of a, of a group of highly like creative and generative individuals. Like it's, it's just not a thing that most people like are born knowing how to do. And so if it isn't, well, then it's learnable. Everybody says we would say that because that's our job, but it's the other way around. That's our job because we know how powerful it is. Yeah, I love that. And a great place to end it. Melissa, Jonathan, thank you for doing this. 
And that's it for today. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Super Managers Podcast. You can find the show notes and transcript at www.fellow.app/supermanagers. If you like the content, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so you can get notified when we post the next episode. And please tell your friends and fellow managers about it. It'd be awesome if you could help us spread the word about the show. See you next time.